in the world's public enemies, Chuck D. Bring the noise. From the Fifth Ant Podcast Network, I'm Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope all is well. Hope all is blessed. We have another interview for you to step two. But this isn't just any old interview, ladies and gentlemen. This is a special interview in many, many ways. Uh, it's the, actually going to be the first one uh, that I'm not even doing. Um, you heard it right. A podcast with my name on it ain't going to hear me after this, apart from the outro. Throughout the interview, you ain't gonna hear shit from me. Um, but yeah, this is even more special because um, you know it's it's, uh, it's an interview that um, I was offered uh, via a publicist in the same way uh, I got offered um, the doctor uh, uh, professor Hajar uh, Yazdia uh, as well, and it's um, pretty much the same thing, same format. And uh, yeah, I just asked him. Um, I don't feel qualified to do this to be to be completely honest, um, but I know someone who is. And then I got on the bat phone, rang up the B signal, and in came, uh, and in came uh, our good friend, uh, ISOS alum and freelance journalist, Mr. Brandon Hill. What is good, sir? How's it going, Charlie? Outstanding. Uh, my back hurts, but it's all good. Um, but yeah, we, uh, I have Brandon here, um, obviously for the intro, because Brandon has taken the keys for this episode, even to the point of editing the whole episode. Um, so I've, 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 I'm literally doing the bare minimum on this front. Um, but before we begin with the intro to the interview itself, uh, would you like to introduce yourself, B, to anybody that aren't aware? Yeah, of course. Uh, so yeah, if you are an ISOS listener, uh, my voice should be familiar to me, to you. I've been a regular on In Search of Sauce um, since way back in the Central Sauce days, uh, which is you know how I know Charlie, um, as well as you know any of the other voices that you see on ISOS. Um, since then, yeah, I've been working as a freelance journalist. I've done the bulk of my work for OK Player, um, a little bit for the Boston Globe, a little bit for Vinyl Me Please, and yeah, the um, the interview that we're going to be doing is on, uh, or I'm speaking to the author of a book on conflict journalists. He's actually one of the foremost experts in the world on um, the psychological impact of journalists in conflict zones. And since I studied conflict journalism at the University of Missouri a little bit, um, also got a master's in journalism at Emerson, Emerson College, um, conflict journalism has always been um, a bit of an interest of mine, even though I haven't done it myself, um, I have done a bit of studying on it. So um, made me really interested in wanting to talk to this author. Yes, exactly, exactly. I literally picked the perfect person, honestly. I feel, I really do. I mean, to honestly feel that. I feel that. I mean that humbly. Um, but yeah, on that interview front, um, who are you speaking to? And uh, what did you guys get into during the interview? Yeah, so I'm speaking with Anthony Feinstein. Um, the book we're discussing is called Moral Courage, which is 19 profiles of conflict journalists. Um, and conflict journalists in this sense is um, defined by, you know, journalists who work in and around war zones, um, as well as journalists who work in countries with um, very low press freedom. Uh, so these journalists work constantly under the threat of death, um, arrest, incarceration, kidnap, exile, torture. 
Um, and he's coming at it from an angle of he as a neuropsychiatrist, um, you know, what are the traits that they have in common um, that compels them to continue doing this work, even under such extreme conditions? Outstanding. Um, I meant to say before it sounded, um, it, you, you can't see it, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm pretty sure B just had his CV just under the camera and just reading off from it. Um, so <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> just got, just got all of those little tidbits out of there. Um, but yeah, man, um, obviously listen to the interview, um, and, uh, I can vouch that, um, you know, it's a very, very timely interview especially considering everything going on in the world right now um and if i could um briefly link um a recent episode of digging digits that we just did to me and ben um we were talking about um and we actually got to the points of moral courage and how we don't have that as a society overall and um it kind of uh, you know we the subject specifically for us was talking about celebrities and um how we see entertainers and should we expect them to speak up on things like this um and it kind of led to a very overall discussion on the concept of moral courage and actually you know how we act in our day-to-day -day lives of you know seeing even the smallest thing or the smallest injustice and actually acting on it whereas you know most people see that kind of thing and you know they just walk past for whatever reason you know what i mean I'm, I'm off to work i'm you know i'm gonna be late or something like that they don't you know they they may recognize injustice but they don't do anything about it so um extremely timely this interview um to to happen and um, i'm happy it's on here i'm happy b that you got to do it um and i'm happy you guys are here to spin it um, so, with that said, without further ado, uh, we're going to leave it to Brandon, and he will take it away. Thanks, Charlie. Today, I'm sitting down with Anthony Feinstein, MD, PhD, a neuropsychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at the University of Toronto. He also runs a multiple sclerosis behavioral research lab devoted to understanding the complex cognitive and mood-related changes that occur in people with MS. However, a second strand of his research explores the psychological effects of conflict on journalists. Feinstein consults with this on news organizations including the New York Times, CNN and the Globe and Mail. He is the author of several books exploring conflict journalism, including the one that will be the centerpiece of our discussion today, Moral Courage, 19 Profiles of Investigative Journalists. As its title suggests, the book is a collection of essays profiling journalists who have worked in conflict zones, such as war zones in Afghanistan and Chechnya, and countries with poor records of press freedom, such as Mexico and Russia. These journalists' investigative work ranges from radio and editorial to political cartoons, but always under threat of death, torture, incarceration, and exile. As a neuropsychiatrist, Feinstein approaches each essay from the angle of moral courage, a psychological characteristic shared by these journalists that compels them to continue to work in poor conditions for low pay while under immense threat. And I'll read from the book's introduction here. One of the most remarkable aspects of their journey is this. Despite the grave threats and violence endured, notwithstanding the grievous losses sustained and fear experienced, these journalists would rather occupy this select spot on the moral courage spectrum than keep quiet. 
It has fallen to them to keep alive the remnants of their failing civil societies. In doing so, they remind their fellow citizens, cowed by authoritarian governments or criminal gangs, that all might not be lost. So for my first question here, I'd like to get to know you a little bit better. As a neuropsychiatrist, what drove your interest in applying your field to researching conflict journalists? Um, so I've been researching journalism uh, for the past 22 years, and I became interested in the topic because I had a patient who was referred to my clinical service back in 1999, and she had a really interesting presentation. She, at first glance, looked like someone with a neurological disorder. She was struggling in terms of her speech and her level of consciousness, but my colleagues in neurology after an exhaustive workup, couldn't find anything neurologically wrong with her. And the conclusion, to cut a long story short, was she was showing a marked stress reaction. And there's a term for it in psychiatry, it's called a conversion disorder or a functional neurological disorder. And she came to my service. She did very well with therapy. And I learned that she was a frontline journalist. And she told me that she'd been covering very difficult stories in East Africa, a famine, many people had died. And she was very stressed by her work. But she never reached out for help. And I said to her, why not? You know, you work for a big news organization. You would have had the help. And she said to me, you don't understand this profession, that if I let on to my editors that I feel this way, they will pull me from the field and I'll never go back. And I thought this was a very punitive uh, response from, you know, from management. And so I said to my MS team, we were working on many MS studies at the time, I said, take a break for a couple of hours and let's go and do a literature search. Let's see what's been written on journalists, and trauma, and war, and emotional response. And we never found a single publication, not one. There was nothing in the literature. And there's a huge literature on trauma, as you know, on you know, soldiers, veterans, firefighters, first responders, you know, victims of assault, rape, etc. but nothing on journalists. And so intrigued by this gap in the literature, I wrote a very quick grant application. I sent it to the Freedom Forum in Washington, DC. And I said, do you know that there's this big gap in the literature? We do not know how war journalists or you know, frontline journalists respond psychologically to all the dangers that they confront. And this was a pre-9-11 world in which um, people were more relaxed about things. There was more grant money around. The foundations were very generous. And they wrote back and said, hey, this is a fascinating question. We will fund a study. And so I ended up doing the very first study of war journalists and their emotional responses. And I thought it would be a one-off. You know, I thought, okay, we'll do the study, we'll collect some interesting data, we'll publish it, we'll move on. And we did. We published the study in the American Journal of Psychiatry. But then, almost overnight, you become the instant expert because you're the guy with the data. And so when 9-11 took place, and then after that, you know, the war in Afghanistan and then the war in Iraq, news organizations said, we've read your paper. We saw the data that came out in the American Journal. Give us some help. What should we be doing with our journalists? And so that started this whole journey over the last 20 years in which I've been asked by many news organizations to advise them, what should we do? And we've done many studies to try and you know, point the way. And to give you a bit of my own background on what sparked my interest in the subject, uh, I was studying war correspondence at the University of Missouri in October 2018. And we talked a lot about, I'm sure some of it was based on your research. We talked a lot about um, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder in journalists and what journalists in these situations go through. And October of 2018 uh, was when Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi was assassinated 
by the Saudi Arabian government at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul uh, for his criticism of the government's internal censorship and intervention that left Yemen in the midst of the world's largest humanitarian crisis. Uh, U.S.-assisted Saudi bombing and blockades have left 24.1 million people, 80% of the country, in dire need of humanitarian aid. And at that time, uh, researching Khashoggi's murder and the crisis in Yemen, the lack of accountability and the abysmal response of the U.S. government and general public forever changed the way that I viewed U.S. foreign policy and left me with a feeling of personal responsibility for my previous ignorance and indifference. And this brings to mind the concept from your book of moral injury and the focus of much of these journalists' investigative work being to combat indifference at great personal risk. So why does the general public of many nations uh, default settings seem to be seeking comfort through indifference and what sets apart the journalists that you covered in this book? Yeah, so um, as you know, the journalists all come from countries in which there is a terrible record of, of human rights and a free press. You know, places like Russia, Belarus, Azerbaijan, you know, Bangladesh, um, you can name them, India, increasingly so, Turkey, in which you've got these authoritarian governments who don't want a free press. They want to control the press. And in many of these countries, the building blocks of civil society have been destroyed. You know, they've, they've destroyed the judiciary. Um, they, they've, they've taken over the courts. There is no due process in, in countries like this. And so the last vestiges of civil society are journalists. And a very few number of journalists because this work has become so dangerous. You know, they face enormous harassment. Um, their lives are in danger. Um, their, their livelihood is in danger because the governments are doing what they can to break them, to control the media. And so these individuals become examples of what I feel is moral courage. Why do they do it? What sustains them um, in this remarkable work? And it's a theory. You know, I interview them all and I try to find common threads. And I'm, I'm very careful. I don't want to, you know, boil down motivation to a single variable because it's not. It's going to be complex. There are going to be multiple factors that motivate journalists to do this. But I think a common thread that unites them across these many different countries is this notion of, of moral courage. And it comes from a sense, I believe, of moral injury. Um, and what, you know, my definition of moral injury, which I borrow from um, <clears throat> a very nice uh, paper written at the University of Syracuse, is that um, is it's a condition that can arise from perpetrating or witnessing or failing to prevent acts that transgress your moral compass. So it comes from things that you might do or other people do, acts of commission, or things that you fail to do, acts of omission. I should have said something. I should have done something. And you keep quiet. So that's the key variable over here of keeping quiet, in a sense, is unacceptable for these journalists. Because if they keep quiet in the face of what they witness in their own country, then they have a sense of moral failure. And moral injury comes with very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable emotions, things like guilt, and shame, and in journalists, anger. And so for the select group of people, they would rather speak out. They would rather say something, make a stand, than keep quiet because the emotions that come with keeping quiet, shame and guilt for them is unacceptable. Um, And so they have this moral courage, which I think is informed in part by wanting to keep moral injury at bay, the antidote to moral injury. And to have moral courage, uh, you know, reading from the literature, um, 
there are a couple of key variables. One is this occurs against the backdrop of violence and danger, and this is what they all share. It then comes from um, your desire to do something about it, your endeavor, your endurance. So despite knowing that it's dangerous, you don't back off, you stick with it, you stay with it. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to keep on reporting. And then it also comes with principles. You know, my principle is that this is morally unacceptable. This is something that's transgressed my moral compass. And so when you've got those three key variables in one person, these high principles, this endurance against the backdrop of danger, and they're speaking out, those things coalesce to form moral courage. If you've got two of the three, it doesn't work out. For example, you know, if, if you've got the endurance, I'm going to do something, and you've got um, the danger, the backdrop, but you don't have the principles, you're not going to have the moral courage. You'll, you'll have courage, you know, you, you'll have courage, but you didn't, you're not doing from a moral, a moral standpoint. Um, if you have the danger and you have the principles, but you don't have the endurance to do something, well, then you're timid, you have a timidity. So you can see that you've got to have all three factors to form this. And that comes from the work of Rashmur uh, Kidder, who's done some really nice work on, on, on moral courage. But I think it all it applies very nicely to the journalists whom I've profiled in my book. Yeah, and what you're talking about here is this, you know, complex interaction of, you know, you, like you said, it's not one thing, it's how these things interact. Um, and in the book, you have this really good visual that you describe of a bell curve, right? Um, could you sort of, you know, ex I thought it was a very simple way for me to understand the concept. Right. Um, so could you kind of break down the, the, the idea of the bell curve for the yeah. listener who hasn't yet dove into the Right. So the bell curve is a, is a statistical construct. It basically says all human characteristics lie along a continuum from, you know, very mild to extreme, whatever you're talking about. You know, take happiness, for example, or sadness, or, um, or in this case, moral courage. It will lie along the continuum from minimal to very strong. And that distribution along the continuum takes the shape of a bell, the bell curve. In stats, we call it a Gaussian distribution. But basically, it says the majority of people clump in the middle. So if you think of a bell, you know, the majority of people are average. They will have an average amount of this, an average amount of that, etc. There are going to be people at the lower end of it who has very little of whatever we're talking about. And there'll be people at the top end who have a lot of what we're talking about. And so when you bring it back to, to moral courage, you will find the same thing. There will be people, majority of people have this average amount of, you know, moral courage. There'll be people who have very little of it. And then you can have people who have an ex extreme amount of it, people who are extraordinarily brave in the face of danger and have the endurance to follow through on something. So these journalists fall at the far end of the spectrum. At the, you know, when you, if you think of a bell shape, at the very end of the bell, at the tip of the bell, at one end, you will have these individuals who have this rare combination of factors that allow them to do this kind of work, that compels them to do this kind of work. So they're, they're a select group. There are not many people who, you know, will put their head up above the parapet and say, hey, you know, this is wrong. This is, you know, what's going on in our country is seriously wrong. And they know when they do it that they're going to get hammered. You know, the regime is going to come after them with everything. They're a real bag of dirty tricks and nasty tricks, but they still do it. So they, they fall in this very select group who, despite the risks, are prepared to speak out. And so I'm now going to dive into, you know, some of the specific pro profiles, and we're going to get into some specific details here. Um, and first, I just want to say, if I mispronounce a journalist's name, please interject, correct me. Lord knows they deserve to have correct, correct pronunciations of their name here. 
Um, a natural place to dive in is right away with the first two profiles because of the dichotomy that they present. Uh, the first, Gwen Lister, is a white South African woman who moves to apartheid Namibia, then known as Southwest Africa, to write political columns in opposition to apartheid. Despite her struggle against government and private sector censorship, Namibia, Namibia eventually gains independence, and when she is offered a high position in the new government's media arm, she turns it down because being too close to power would affect her ability to hold power in check. Due to her work and conviction, today Namibia ranks highest in Africa in terms of press freedom. But the second profile of Abdul Mujib Kalvadgata details a journalist in Afghanistan who is first forced to flee his country when the USSR invades. After they pull out, he returns to start a radio station and a program for training journalists while under constant threat from the Taliban's rise to power. Much of his work is then eventually eroded away when he has to flee the country a second time, leaving his mother behind in the chaos of the U.S. evacuation from Afghanistan. Uh, was it your intention with these first two profiles to show these drastically different outcomes for this work right out of the gate? And if that work can so easily be dismantled by forces way beyond your control, why is it still worth doing? Yeah, all great questions. So, so let me start with Gwen Lister, who's just a remarkable woman. So, um, and you did work in Namibia as well. I, I read from your profile. Yeah, yeah, we did. I, you know, we developed the country's first rating scale for detecting psychological distress. So, uh, I worked with Namibian colleagues at the University of Namibia, and we, and we published that. Um, so, Gwen Lister starts this remarkable journey as a child. So, she's you know, go back to the 1960s, apartheid South Africa. Apartheid's very entrenched. And she's traveling on a bus in Cape Town. And in the apartheid days, white people could sit on the ground floor of a double-decker bus, but black people had to go up the stairs and sit at the top. So you have this very, you know, um, um, this very enforced racial segregation, even on a bus. So there's this kid sitting on a bus, and the bus stops, and a black woman, elderly black woman, gets on with a lot of parcels. And now she has to go all the way up these stairs in a moving bus. Very hard to do. And Gwen Lister instinctively gets up to give this woman her seat in the bus. And in doing so, the white people sitting on the, you know, the, the ground floor of the bus are enraged because, you know, she's breaking the, you know, the racial segregation uh, that, that apartheid was. Um, but what makes a kid do this? You know, this is a 15-year-old kid who has this precocious sensibility, this precocious moral sensibility. She doesn't come from a political family. It's not like she's growing up in a home in which, you know, they're discussing apartheid and the rights and wrongs. And it comes from a typical, you know, white South African family, having a reasonable quality of life. The color of their skin gave you many advantages. But she does this as a child. And then when you follow the course of her life thereafter, you see that this moral compass was set at a very early age, and she never wavered from it. She wanted to um, make a stand against racial segregation. She realized she would be able to do it quicker as a journalist if she moved to Namibia, Southeast Africa. She would get through the hoops a lot faster to rise to the top, which is what she did. And from the very beginning, she started to expose the iniquities of apartheid, to write about it, to um, promote democratic principles. And she paid a high price for that. The South African government came after her, as they did. She was arrested. Um, they tried to break her uh, professional endeavors. She started her own newspaper called The Namibian, which is still there. And the people would drive past the, the, the officers and shoot at it with guns. They would get pipe bombs, things like that. They would destroy office equipment. So she, she faced enormous pressures. Um, 
And those things spill over into your private life. You know, she, she says they would even compromise her relationships. It became hard to sustain relationships because, you know, a partner would be so concerned about this harassment and the dangers faced that, you know, they would leave. And so um, that became a very pa- painful consequence for her as well on a personal level. You know, financially, there's, there's no gains in this. You, know, you, you don't make money from this kind of work. So she struggled financially because of this and she had children to raise. So enormous courage and never deviated from it. And at the end of the day, Namibia becomes independent. The South Africans have to leave. Apartheid you know, ends. You've got a free democratic country. And she plays a pivotal role in it through being a journalist someone with a very powerful voice who supported democracy. And at the end of this, you know, incredible journey, one of the religious leaders in the country said to her, um, what made a little white girl like you do this, you know? What made this 15-year-old kid on a bus, you know, just get up and give her a seat? And, you know, I think Gwen struggled to, form, first of all, she was surprised by the question, but she struggled to formulate an answer to it other than, you know, it's the right thing to do. Which, is, which it is, of course, but why is it the right thing to do? You come into this whole notion of moral injury and moral courage, which I think you know informs the, 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 the premise in my book. And then, as you rightly point out, you know she's instrumental in helping democracy come to Namibia. And so, when the government, the new government, comes into power, they offer her essentially like a government appointment, and she turned it down because she quite correctly says, journalists can't be too close to government. You're too close to power. So she could have taken it, you know. She could have got a lot of perks and a lot of benefits after, you know, a lifetime of financial struggle. There were, you know, there were rewards to be had. But such was her moral compass, she didn't do it. She says, you know, this is what good journalism is. You keep a distance from power. So you see this absolute um, fidelity, this absolute consistency in terms of the way she sticks to her moral compass over the course of a lifetime, from a child to where she is now. I think it's just a remarkable, remarkable profile. Um, um, Abdul Kalvagar, similar principles, but but very different, different circumstances. Um, he was a man who grew up in Afghanistan um, under Soviet occupation. Um, and, you know, the Soviets controlled things very tightly. And if you did well at school, you didn't have a choice of where you would go in terms of your university. If you didn't, mm-hmm. your grades were good, they would steer you towards the sciences and engineering, you know. And that wasn't his first love. But he didn't have any choice because that was the nature of, the, of Afghanistan at the time. So he didn't do journalism. He became an engineer and then things became very difficult uh, in, in Afghanistan with the Mujahideen fighting the, uh, the Russians, etc. And so he left. He went into exile. He went to Iran. And he worked as an engineer in Iran for a while. And then with the overthrow of the Taliban, first time, um, he came back. He came back to, to Afghanistan and reinvented himself. He went back to university, despite having this engineering degree. He went back to study the social sciences and got into journalism and then helped build up this remarkable organization called NAI, N-A-I, which was a Afghan um, NGO uh, whose aim was to promote good journalism, freedom of the press, to train a new generation of Afghans and what is good, what is good journalism, and they started small and they built up and they had you know networks all over the country. A remarkable success. Um, Afghans flocked to them to learn journalism um, because you've got a practical degree in journalism. 
not the academic kind of degree that you would get from a university, but the practical hands-on kind of journalism. And this was a, this was a group that you know was uh, completely committed to building civil society in Afghanistan after the throw of the Taliban. Really invested in the country, doing remarkable work, training lots of journalists, women journalists, opening up a pathway for women to have this career. And then um, along the way, as the Taliban started to return to Afghanistan and they became powerful, you know, they view people like Mujib Kalbadga as a threat, an absolute threat. And they start all this propaganda. They accuse him of being, you know, a stooge and being, you know, part of uh, a Mossad and all this Israeli stuff and a Jewish agent and all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, and they basically made his life, you know, very difficult. And so towards the end of his time in Afghanistan, you know, when we would speak, you know, he would show me on a Skype call the elaborate security that he had in his home with all these cameras and all these early warning systems because, you know, journalists were getting killed. They were getting targeted by, by the Taliban. And still he stuck to it. He would not leave. He was completely committed. This was a 20-year project. You know, he helped build up this NGO to do such incredible work. And then when the government fell, he had to leave. You know, one of the first things the Taliban did when they arrived in Kabul was they came looking for him. And he got a call. He got a call the morning of you know, when, the, when the Taliban arrived in Kabul. He got a call saying, you know, don't go home. They they, they, they visited your home. So the Taliban knew who he was. Um, and so he really had to get out of Afghanistan with, with his family because his life was un, untenable. They, they, they would have killed him. And so he had this harrowing exit, as you know. I mean, the you know when the government fell, the, the exit from Afghanistan with the planes and uh, the huge crowds at the airport and having to get through this mass of people, you know, to board your flight was such a harrowing experience. And uh, in in the melee at the airport, he got separated from his elderly mother, and he had to leave her behind. Uh, but he got his family out, and he's actually living in Canada now with, with his family. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, throughout it all, throughout this very difficult, the very difficult final years of, of um, his time in Afghanistan, he didn't give up on the dream of a free society, a free press, recognizing that good journalism is, you know, a basic building block of civil society, that if, if, if Afghanistan was going to be free and democratic, which is what they wanted, you had to have a vibrant press. And that's what Nye was doing. And it was, you know, that was, that was one of the great success stories of Afghanistan. You, know, you had this, you had this, this press that um, was holding the Afghan government accountable, you know, calling out the corruption, calling out ministers. You know, they were doing all the right things that journalists are supposed to do. This was the new Afghanistan. The government didn't like them, but the government had to tolerate them because the government was dependent on foreign aid money. You know, and, and foreign donors, like you know, Canadians, Americans, saying, you know, you've got to expect democratic principles. So the Afghan government had to tolerate Nye, and they did a great job. They really did. Mm-hmm. There was a whole generation of Afghan journalists who understood what needed to be done to support democracy. That was wonderful because women were part of it. You know, they opened the doors to so many women. Um, and the tragedy of it now, of course, is that, you know, there are no women working in Afghanistan. You've gone back to the bad old days of the Taliban. Mm-hmm. They, all these women learned these skills. You know, they got empowered through education, becoming journalists, and overnight that was all lost. So, in, was it sort of then like an intentional decision to put these two profiles right at the front that show really this broad range that, despite like you mentioned, the similar characteristics across the journalists, um, the broad range that powers outside of their own control can yeah. can influence that work. Yeah, yeah. There are a number of reasons in terms of the structure of the order. Number one is, in general, I wanted there to be 
a good representation of women journalists in my book as well, because they didn't, mm. you know, so much. And historically, you know, um, um, frontline journalism, journalism was a, a male discipline that, that's changing. So I, you know, wanted there to be a really good representation of women in the book. And I think it's a 50-50 split. I wanted Gwen Lister to go first because I think there's a historical perspective there, you know, going back in time, showing that this has been around a long time. This whole notion of moral courage is certainly not new in journalists. Um, so I thought it was really good to start with her. And then, you know, Afghanistan was so fresh in everyone's memories when I was working on this. In fact, when I first met Mujib, um, the Taliban hadn't taken over yet. But it was in the last few years of the, you know, the, the Afghan government. And, um, and, and we, we did a study together uh, looking at, you know, what, what were Afghan journalists going through. We just, you know, highlighted the extraordinarily high rates of trauma in this group. Um, and because it was so contemporary and so fresh and because uh, we in the West were so aware of what was happening, I thought it would make a very good second profile in the book. But when I started the work, uh, he was he was still doing his, his work in Afghanistan. And I want to return actually to, to Gwen Lister and the story that you discussed about uh, this moment that she has on a bus that becomes sort of a... Um, galvanizing moment for her career in journalism. And of this, and this is from, I'm reading from the book here, of this moment, uh, Lister writes, I resolve never again to remain silent in the face of injustice in general and the oppressive reality of apartheid in particular, to which you then write, uh, can a 13-year-old resolve never to remain silent in the face of injustice and then hold herself to that high bar over the course of half a century? And I think many people experience moments similar to this um, certainly many of the journalists profiled here. And, you know, I'm wondering if, you know, why these impactful moments don't last for everyone. And I wonder if part of it is something to do with children being more sensitive to moral injury. Um, and if so, you know, why does that last in some but not in others? Yeah, that's that's really the intriguing thing, isn't it? That it starts so young, where does it come from? Uh, and in her, in her case, you can't say... This was something that was learned because, as I say, she came from a family that wasn't a political family. There were discussions around the dinner table at night about the rights and wrongs of apartheid. It was just a family, a middle class family, getting on with their life. Um, and yet, you know, this, this, this child at the beginning of adolescence has this conviction that she's going to do something about it. Why does she stay with it? Well, I think you come back to what we spoke about earlier, the, the, the key ingredients, the building blocks of moral courage. You've got to have the danger, which was there, uh, you know, the apartheid regime was very harsh in dealing with people who didn't agree with them, so the danger was always there. You then had the high principles, which, you know, in her case, she showed precociously as a child, but then you had this key ingredient, the endurance, the endurance, sticking with it, com you know, compelled to do it, the endurance in the face of a government trying to break you. Endurance in the face of fellow citizens rounding on you, you know. When she was writing in Namibia, Southeast Africa at the time, about the iniquities of the political system, she was not welcomed by many of the white people in Namibian society. They would shun her. You know, they would caricature her. She would be, the, you know, caricature in newspapers. Um, she was not a popular person in white Namibian society. Um, and yet... She still stuck with it. So she had the endurance. She had that. She had the, you know, the three key principles that you know, kid at 
writes it out that make up moral courage. Um, other people don't have that. They, you know, they can they can see, okay, we know that apartheid's wrong. So we've got our principle, we know it's wrong. Um, we know it's dangerous. We can see it's dangerous. Look what's happening to Gwen Lister. They don't have the endurance because if we stick up our hands and oppose the government and protest, they're going to come after us as well. And that's a price we're not prepared to pay. And that's when you talk about you know, this distribution along the bell curve. There are a lot of people, the majority of people are being good people. They'll look around them and say, this is wrong. We know this is wrong. But I'm not prepared to pay the price of taking the government. Because it's not going to affect just me, you know. If I get arrested, if I lose my job, it's going to affect my family, my children. You know, there are going to be ramifications for being um, courageous. And so they don't. And that's why people keep quiet. And I don't stand in judgment on that. That's just the way things are. But then you've got this very small select group that I talk about at the far end of the bell curve, the far end of this continuum, who for them, staying quiet is a source of such moral hurt. It comes with shame and guilt. You know, shame and guilt are very powerful emotions for some people. They can't live with that when they feel this way. You just can't live with this guilt, can't live with the shame. How do I get rid of that? Well, I get rid of it by making a stand. I make a stand. I know they're going to come after me. You know, they're going to hit me hard. They might arrest me. I might lose my job. But that is preferable to the shame and guilt that comes to staying quiet. And in Gwen's case, you know, like we said, this moment um, galvanizes her pursuit of journalism. But I was actually kind of surprised to find that um, I think a majority of the journalists here, including Mujib, um, actually start out in something other than journalism right. before either a moment or some aspect of their life then propels them into this field. So I'm wondering if people with these characteristics naturally gravitate to this work or do these characteristics compel people to fill in these spaces that are so direly needed? Yeah, I mean, I think both, actually. I think both. I think they see journalism as a conduit to having an influence on what's going on in their society. How, how are we going to change things? You know? Well, you can join NGOs. Um, you can join maybe grassroots protest movements, things like that. But they recognize that through journalism, you can reach people. Through the media, you've got a you've got a big reach. You know that's why you know repressive governments don't like them because they understand that. You know they know that journalism's got the power to reach you know lots and lots of people, and you know th these individuals know that. If I'm going to make a mark, if I'm going to make a difference, what's the best way to do it? And journalism offers in that. And so you're right; they move from something that is fundamental, you know, so 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 far away from journalism. They they move into journalism as a form of advocacy, as a form of helping a protest movement. And there are many examples in my book of that. Mm. And so now, I now want to talk about, you know, specific ways in which their work is suppressed and sort of a pattern of like the way that this escalates. Um, and I'm going to bring at least one example for each of these points, but I encourage you, you know, to fill in with other examples from the book since so many of these things, you know, remain so consistent across these profiles. Um, so firstly, let's talk about Candido Fuguardo Ruiz, who leaves his dream of being a journalist in Paraguay because it's required to pledge loyalty to the dictator Alfonso Strassner and lives 21 years in Norway, uh, the polar opposite when it comes to civic freedoms. After 21 years, he returns to Paraguay to cover drug and weapons trafficking on the border of Paraguay and Brazil, a job so dangerous that he lives under 24-7 armed protection and still barely makes enough money to support his living. At any point, 
He could have returned to some version of his previous life in Norway, but he chooses to remain in these conditions. How does the poor economic prospects and living conditions of the job dissuade people from doing it? You know, um, great points. You come back to this whole question of endurance. Um, so the endurance and the drive is going to be in the face of violence in his case. So he risks you know, being killed by the, 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 the drug barons in, in Paraguay. Um, but there are other downsides as well. You know, you're not making a great living. Uh, you know, you might be financially difficult situation, etc. And it's hard to. This is how I'm going to live my life. You know, I'm going to live my life recognizing that um, I'm not going to make a great living from what I do. Um, but you come back to why am I doing it? This motivating factor, the shame and the, and, and the guilt that comes with their recognition that civil society is being undermined in many ways destroyed by by drugs and the drug cartels. And you see that, you know, so powerfully um, in countries in, in which there's corruption and in which, you know, the drug barons have taken control. I mean, Mexico is another perfect example of that. So I think his, you know, I think Candido's story is really remarkable because he lives for such a long time under this armed guard. And he's got all these guards with him the whole time. They're living in his home. As he said to me, there are only two rooms in the house where there are no armed men keeping an eye on him, you know, his bedroom and the bathroom, the washroom. Otherwise, they're there. When he wakes up in the morning and he steps out of his, his, you know, his bedroom, there they are, you know, keeping him. Such is the level of danger. You know, we take so many things for granted. I want to get a cup of coffee, you know, walk down the road. I go and sit at a Starbucks and have a cup. He can't do that. You know? If he wants to go somewhere, they've got to come with him. They come in the car with him and there's another car, you know, with armed guards behind. So it's not like you can have one guy coming with you. There's like like a posse almost of, you know, six or seven armed people to keep this one journalist alive. Such is a risk. Um, and he still does it. You know, he sticks with it. It compromised his ability to see his family because he didn't want to endanger his family. What you see in these, in these countries, Paraguay, Mexico being another example, is that, you know, the drug cartels know if you want to get to a journalist, get to his family. Go after his parents or his grandparents, his you know, relatives. Um, and so he realized that for me to do this work, they're going to come after my family. And they did. They did come after his family. And so he had to distance himself, almost cut himself off from his family. He reports this really painful um, conversation that he had with his mother in the driveway of his home, basically saying, you know, given the nature of the work that I'm doing, maybe we can't see one another because this is going to put you in such danger. You know, and those that's my moments to stop you in your tracks. What does it take to have a conversation like that with a parent and to say, you know, mom, maybe I can't see you because what I'm doing is so dangerous. But he's not going to back off because if he backs off, it becomes an act of omission, an act of keeping quiet. And if you're going to change anything in this drug-infested society that I live in, who's going to do it, you know? It's going to fall on people like me to speak out and to make a stand. And he does it for year after year. And I think after that, so many years, eventually he's just had enough. And so, you know, he left and, and now lives, you know, in the United States. But he stuck at it for such a long time. And I think, you know, his story, uh, Ruiz, is defined sort of by this, like, uncompromising, almost rebellion and bravery. Um, the story that really leads to his uh, needing of this armed guard, as you detail in the book, is um, when he's reporting on an illegal beer importation scheme. And he is offered $2,000 uh, from a lawyer with this company for to, you know, buy his silence. Um, and instead of even just turning that down, uh, he meets with the lawyer 
requests $3,000, secretly records the conversation, um, and then donates the money to, was it like a women's shelter or children's, a, a children's hospital? Yeah. 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 A children's hospital. Um, it has all this on recording and he's, which first of all is just bold and brave and, in in, in, in the way that he has seen these organizations, um, kill other journalists for doing much, much less than this. Yes. And the response for this is that his house is sprayed with 45 bullets, I think, you know, the next day or yeah. or a few days later, right? Yes. Now, there's a message there, of course. But if you even go back in his history, you know, when he was a young man and he had to get into university, and at the time, Paraguay was controlled by this dictator, Strusner, you know, very, very nasty man. Um, connections with, with the Nazis. This guy goes back. He's a rich, mm-hmm. <laughs> very problematic history. And to get into university, you basically had to pledge allegiance to the dictator. He wouldn't do it. You know, He could have got into university, a very smart, able man, but he would not, as a very young man, pledge loyalty to a person that he knew was a dictator. So you see, you know, this moral compass is there very, very strongly. And then it stays with him when he comes back to Paraguay trying to build you know, civil society after Strusten is gone. Um, and so, he, you know, but you know, like, like Wayne Lister, you see the same theme. You've got this moral compass is there early in your developmental history, and it stays with him. He doesn't let go of it. And now, I, I, his story, I found myself as I was reading it very like it, it almost reads like a spy thriller, right? Mm. And there is um, the other journalist, Ai Chen Nang, mm. um, who's a Myanmar journalist who works in Norway, who has this story about him, you know, trying to scrub. A fraudulent stamp off of his passport because he's worried about re- being redirected when he arrives at the airport um, yeah. and sent home and tortured. And I do wonder if there is some, or I guess what would be the appropriate way to approach these stories when it comes to romanticizing this sort of, you know, secret agent kind of lifestyle, or if, you know, there is a danger to not acknowledging, like, or I mean, not just not acknowledging, but um, a danger in, I guess, romanticizing the conditions that they live under rather than addressing the systemic issues that mm. force them to live under those conditions. Yeah. No, I think there's nothing romantic about this. I think, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I'm quite open in my admiration for them because I think these are remarkable people, but I think there's absolutely nothing romantic about this. And this is very, very dangerous work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when he, when he left Myanmar, Burma at the time, this was a man who had a really good career waiting for him. He had gone to dental school. He was on the cusp of qualifying as a dentist. As he jokingly said to me, he could have lived in Myanmar as a dentist. He could have made excellent money. He jokes. He said, I would have had a Tesla motor car. You know, He would have had all the trappings of um, material success. But he gave that all up because when he looked at you know, Burmese society, he saw it was so um, under the control of the military. It was so undemocratic. It was unacceptable, completely unacceptable. And when he left, he left without telling his family. You know, he came from a close family. And what kind of courage and drive does it have to you know, turn your back on your family because you know that by leaving, it's going to be really difficult to see them again. You know? And he walks across and goes into exile in neighboring Thailand and his parents get wind of what he's done 
and desperately try to head him off before he gets to the border. So you think of it, you know, as, as, I think, I mean, when, when, I, when I hear the story and I'm writing about it, I think of it as a parent, you know, I have children, you know, I understand exactly what his parents are doing, you know, you, you, you don't want to lose a child. You know, you're going to lose a child because of this course that he's taking. You know, you desperately want to bring him back. You, say, you know, don't do this. Let's talk about it. Let's discuss it. Um, and uh, they couldn't get to him in time, and he slipped across the border, and that was it. And and then he says to me, living in exile, and he obviously missed his family dreadfully. You see, the small, you know, the small wee hours of the morning when you wake up and you're alone with your thoughts. These are really difficult times. There's nothing romantic about this. This is really hard, you know. But he couldn't bring himself to phone his parents because if he did, he felt he would break down and he would weaken his resolve and he would have to go back because he was so close to them. So he didn't. And and so he doesn't contact his parents for a long, long time. And eventually there is some contact, you know, and he's talking to his mother. You can imagine what this moment is like. Um, and she says to him, you know, how proud she is of him. And don't come back until you've finished your work. Imagine what it takes for a parent to say that to a child, because she must be absolutely longing to see her, her boy. You know? And she says to him, if you come back prematurely, you will not enter the house through the front door. You will have to come back to the... So she's almost shaming him, you know, saying, no, you stay with it. You've got this resolve. You've gone this far. Stay with it. That's a very, very moving story. There's nothing romantic about it. It's just hard. It's hard for him. It's hard for his parents. It's hard for everyone. You know, parents have lost a child. He's lost a family. But he's doing it because he sees something bigger, which is that if we don't do it, this country's never going to be free. It's never going to escape, you know, the, the, the military. And then, of course, he goes into exile and does a remarkable thing. He starts, you know, Free Burmese Radio, which reaches, you know, millions of people. And he gets this recognition you know, YouTube gives him this um, this you know, this plaque saying you've got now you know over a million people who are who are listening to you are getting the news through your through your network. They're getting you know good news because no one else is doing it. You know, the, the government in, in, in Myanmar has basically killed the press. And I think even you know once you then get over this hurdle that um, dissuades people from pursuing the profession, uh, there are many obstacles to actually doing it. Uh, one that comes to mind is the work of Ken Dundar, an investigative journalist covering violence and corruption in Turkey, which is defined by his dealings with government censorship. He seems most interested in doing the reporting work, but much of his job as an editor actually ends up grappling with government red tape to justify the work of his publication. His earliest awarded story is about the disappearance of people being held in detention facilities, but to publish it, he has to concede a headline that reads favorably of the military. How do these journalists balance working under censorship with the drive to hold power to accountability? Yeah. That's an exquisite tightrope. You know, they realize that um, the margins uh, are very small for kind of slipping over the edge and ending up, um, you know, being hurt by the regime. And so early on in his career, he learned that. Um, he worked for a, a media organization that did have some connections with the government and by you know, changing the, the the headline on the story, they were able to get some content into the press that basically highlighted the, the you know the plight of, of missing people in Turkey. But then he rises up, you know, through his extraordinary abilities, he rises up to become the editor of this you know really well known Turkish newspaper, and then he's taken by the government. You know, he's taken on a very repressive government, um, and he's breaking stories about even the leader Erdogan. Um, you know, the corruption that he that that, that, that was apparent there, <clears throat> but also the you know, destruction of human rights. So he knows what the costs are going to be. He knows that in Turkey, 
journalist die. He arrived at the scene of you know one one assassination of a colleague of his. He saw he saw the aftermath of this assassination. A journalist blown up in a car bomb. You know, put some pieces of his body all over the pavement and stuck on building. I mean, you know, you left in no doubt that this is very dangerous work. Um, in fact, he survived an assassination attempt, and he still he still kept kept going until it got to a point where life becomes intolerable. And then you know when someone like that leaves, you know you leave behind your country your financial security, you leave behind all these things that you built up. Even for a period, he left behind his family. He left behind his wife. It took her three years for, he, for, for her to join him, you know, in exile in Germany. And she had to, you know, you know sneak across uh, the, the border because the, the Turkish government is not going to help her join her husband. Um, and so, you know, we're talking about a NATO country over here. You know, Turkey is a member of NATO. Uh, this is how they treat journalists. In their country, and over the course of his lifetime, he's never wavered from from his from his from his, uh, from his principles. He has the endurance. He's got this key ingredient. He's got the endurance to stick with it despite assassination attempts, despite seeing his colleagues assassinated, you know, despite being at the scene of a colleague's assassination, seeing you know what car bombs do to people, uh, despite all the harassment, uh, despite you know having to leave. Turkey, despite being separated from his wife, despite all the financial insecurity that comes with this, he still sticks with it. And that's remarkable. Um, ultimately, I believe these people went out in the end. I think ultimately they outlast bad governments, but it can take a very long time and it comes with a lot of pain. So when you look at this journey, this lifetime journey, you know, there's nothing romantic in it. I think it's just very, very hard, very painful. And his story also shows how censorship doesn't just come on behalf of government, but from private interests as well. Uh, You mentioned how Turkish Prime Minister Erdogan encourages his wealthy friends, likely made wealthy by the very corruption that Dundar is exposing, um, to purchase media outlets in order to directly influence them. This version of censorship is something we contend with uh, even in countries higher up on the Press Freedom Index. So how are private interests able to influence investigative work in democracies like the U.S. or the U.K., who is largely the listeners of this podcast? Yeah, I mean, you know, there are models over here that, you know, you, um, the media people get into bed with politicians. Um, they speak favorably of politicians and then favors come back to them. And, you know, that's, that's the exact example in Turkey. And just before I get into the United States and, and Canada, um, there's, a, there's a remarkable story that in my book with the Zambian journalist, Wapwe Kumwenda, who, um, when she finished school, a very bright woman, had this debate, uh, you know, what am I going to do with my career? What am I going to choose? I want to make a difference. I want to make a social difference to Zambia. Do I do it through law or do I do it through journalism? Because mm. she could have done both. And she chose journalism because she could have got into journalism school quicker than law school and she would have seen herself making an impact you know, quicker through journalism. So she does that. And then, you know, she works her way up, you know, to, 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 to be one of the country's finest journalists and then realizes that so many of the media people in Zambia are in bed with the politicians. And so when she starts running into difficulties with her career because she's taking on the government, she doesn't quite trust the lawyers who represent her because they might have connections to the government. So, you know, things are so corrupt. Everything starts, you know, bleeding into one another. And so to ensure that she is not beholden to you know, lawyers who might have government connections, she wants to go back to university and train as a, as a, as a lawyer so that she can provide her own counsel to herself. So she will be completely and absolutely independent of any kind of link to the government to do her journalism. 
being. Once again, to do that, you've got to have this endurance, right? You've got to be able to stick with it. You've got to have not enough to have principles. You've got to be able to see it through through very difficult learning. Journalism school, law school, having to go back to law school, you know, is not an easy not an easy path. But that's what they do. So coming back to our democracies, I think this book is absolutely relevant to our societies because dictatorial leaders, authoritarian leaders, see a playbook in countries like Russia and Turkey and Hungary that they can follow in the United, in the United States or United Kingdom, uh, Canada, for example. They learn from this playbook, which is that if you want to control society, control the media. They know that. If you're going to have a free, vibrant press calling you out for every misdemeanor, that's an enormous irritant. They don't want that. You know, these are intolerant people. They're dictatorial. They're authoritarian. They're the, you know, they're the big man of society. We know what's best for everyone. And, you know, just trust me, you know, we'll, we'll take care of everything, which is, you know, just the antithesis of what these journalists stand for. And so they look to these countries in which civil societies crumbled, in which the authoritarian leader like Putin has essentially destroyed civil society. And they're attracted to it. We know that, you know, Trump admire, he admires Putin. He admires the strongman. He admires Orban in Hungary. You know? Why? Because he sees there the playbook that allow, that allow these dictators, these strongmen, to take control of society, to dispense with democratic institutions. And to do that, to do that effectively, you've got to control the media. You've got to control the press. And that's why they demonize journalists, this whole fake news thing, you know, why he always calls out journalists, why he gets the crowd riled up, I'm talking about Trump here, riled up against journalists because they perceive the free press as a threat. Hmm. And I mean, that Trump is a good mention because there's um, famously in that one of, I think it was at one of his rallies, he mentions how uh, we should incarcerate journalists like Putin does. Paraphrasing here, but that's pretty close to a direct quote. And when censorship isn't enough, um, the powerful in these situations, whether governments or criminal, criminal organizations, uh, resort to direct threats of violence, both verbal, chillingly physical, and legal. Uh, female investigative journalists are particularly beset by constant threats of sexual violence. Um, as we mentioned, the home of Ruiz is sprayed with 45 bullets. And Larissa Sirakova, whose work in Belarus focuses on maintaining the validity of Belarus culture as separate from a Russian national identity, is so sure of her own arrest that she prepares her teenage son and says, I am an honest person. Those who arrest me are the criminals. There are many respectable working in prison now, and I will be one of them. I am working for a better future, to lead a normal life, and not to be afraid of the police, of persecution, to live in a normal democracy and be protected by law. Um, so my question here is, how do these journalists uh, work under this extreme stress, not just how do they mentally deal with it, um, but how do they actually execute the job under this kind of stress? Yeah, that's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, this is a single mother with a teenage child, and she keeps a bag perpetually packed because she expects to be arrested. She's already been arrested a few times. So, you know, she expects it to happen again. And to prepare her son, she has this conversation with him. And once again, you know, you just stop. You just, you just stop. When you hear a story like that, you just stop and think, you know, what, is, what does it take to have a conversation like this with your child, to know that this is going to happen? What kind of resolve does it have to say, look, you know, this is going to be really tough for my, for my kid. I'm a single parent. Um, and yet, you can't keep quiet. You, you've got to do it. Um, 
And so you and just another example of the of this extraordinary result. But then of course she's also got to keep working. You know, she's got to put food on the table. She's got to, you know, she's got to make a living. And she does it through journalism. Um, you know, she thinks, well, you know, maybe I'll flee to another country, you know, and and I'll you know I'll be safer there. I won't, you know, I won't face arrest. But then she says, What am I going to do there? What am I going to do in another country? Maybe I can't work as a journalist or end up as, you know, as a cleaner or whatever. So, you know, there's the reality of the situation. I have to live. I've got to support my child. I've got to support myself. You know, I've got some parents who are elderly. I've got responsibilities. I've got to make a living. So I don't have the luxury of kind of throwing up my hands and saying, you know, this is too tough. I'm overwhelmed by it all. Um, and stop, stop working as a journalist. She started out as a teacher. You know? She didn't start out as a journalist. She was another one of these individuals who, you know, looking around at society, felt she would make a greater impact on bringing about a free society in Belarus if she stayed if she stayed working as a journalist rather than going back to teaching. Her mother desperately wanted to go back to teaching because it's safe. You know, you're going to be a teacher. You're not going to have the secret service, which, by the way, in Belarus is still known as the KGB. There's still the KGB in Belarus. You're not going to have the KGB knocking on your door in the early hours of the morning. But she's not going to do that. You know, her moral compass is set. This is what I have to do. And if it means preparing my teenage son for my arrest, I'll have my bag packed and he'll be prepared for what's going to happen next. And that's a tough thing to tell a kid. You know, the kid's peering out through the curtains looking to see, you know, when's the car coming to take mom away? This is not an easy situation to live in, but this is the reality. Um, I want to talk about quickly just anti-corruption journalism on an international scale. Um, several of these stories mention the Panama Papers, which is the leaking of 11.5 million documents in 2016 that contained attorney-client information that contained uh, data on the personal finances of public officials around the world. And these documents are the launching point for the investigative work of Pavla Holkova in the Czech Republic and Slovakia, and initially made waves in the West before seeming to drop out of public consciousness. Uh, however, they did allow Holkova to build infrastructure needed to be prepared for the substantially larger leak of the Pandora Papers in 2021, which somehow barely registered in the U.S., uh, so why does it seem like investigative work is more impactful in these countries considered far more dangerous to do it in than it is in places like the U.S. and the U.K., where it quickly reverts to business as usual? Yeah, it could be a great question. Well, you, could, you could say, well, these other countries are more corrupt than the countries that you mentioned. So it's just, you know, the level of corruption. Um, but but the, you know, the universal truths over here and corruption undermines democracy. Um, when the leaders practice corruption on a grand scale, you're essentially destroying, you know, part of your civil society. So there's a similar thread that links the kind of work that she does to someone um, like David Frankel, who's, you know, uh, in Russia, who's going after Putin and, 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 and civil rights. So there are multiple ways that these, these bad leaders undermine democracy, and corruption is certainly one of them. You've got a corrupt society, the courts are corrupt, you know, when there's so much... Um, money ending up in the wrong hands um, that empowers um, despotic leaders and it brings out the Western society. And so the anti-corruption move is very powerful, very essential as a building block for democracy. I want to return to the threat of sexual violence against women. Um, India is a country that you refer to as rapidly sliding down that scale of press freedom and democracy. And Neha Dixit, whose work by your account has probably had some of the most lasting impact, um, including an expose on child labor that led to the rescue of 250 children. Uh, she works under sexual harassment from India's conservative populace, but also directly from editors she works with, and she has little to no recourse. 
And I can draw a parallel here to the journalists and researchers in the US and UK uh, who are covering the rapidly growing radicalizing effect of online misogyny that comes out of the manosphere and encelosphere um, who face aggressive doxing and threats of sexual violence as a result of their work. This is something I've covered a little bit. So I've, I've spoke to a few journalists. I've spoke to a few um, experts. And, you know, this issue is, is, is extremely bad on this subject. Um, so what I'm and you can talk here about about Dixit's work as well. But um, how does the inaction of law enforcement also operate as a form of censorship? And does that in this case make it even more difficult for women in particular to cover the topics that they want to cover? Well, you know, speaking to her experience, you know, what she told me was that she's getting harassed very frequently, um, often with a very violent sexual content, and um, she doesn't back off. You know, she recognizes it as a very significant threat, which it is in India. Um, she doesn't take the threats lightly, but as we spoke about earlier, staying quiet for her would be an act of omission. And that is unacceptable because that would leave her feeling guilty that she's kept quiet. She would feel ashamed that she's kept quiet. And so those emotions override her natural concerns for her personal safety. So very courageous. She um, recognizes what the risks are. They are not abstract risks. They're very real risks. Someone's broken into her apartment. Um, a local chief of police has let her know, we know where your mother lives, you know, all these implicit threats against her. Um, but she doesn't keep quiet, and um, she speaks out against, you know, violence against women, violence against children, child brides, um, on on matters that are, are are very dangerous in the current climate within India that doesn't tolerate this kind of dissent. Uh, you know, she she comes from the right the right um, religious group in India. If she kept quiet, she would have a a life with all the privileges that. Um, people of her social standing would have. Um, so so that, that, that's clearly not enough for her. Um, and we come back to my point that I made earlier, that act of omission is just too painful. And how does that compare to sort of the, you know, more online, but also still very real harassment um, that female journalists and male journalists also um, experience for covering, you know, the growth of like online misogyny? Yes, I mean, there's a common link between it all. You know, we're sitting on a data set collected in Canada of um, of journalists and the harassment, the online harassment, and the content is, is, is awful. It's just very nasty, very vicious stuff. Um, and, the, you know, this is in Canada. This is not India. Um, and these are journalists who are getting relentlessly harassed uh, by the general public through social media. And often um, it has a sexual content, a violent sexual content, particularly for women more than men. Um, and that's a cause of grave concern. And another story that I really wanted to touch on here, because um, it sort of stood out from the book, is the story of Ahmed Kabir Kishore, uh, who is a political cartoonist in Bangladesh, who is arrested and tortured horribly for publishing unfavorable images of the Bangladeshi government. Um, and this stood out to me from all other profiles, because while reading the book, you constantly get this you know, feeling in all these stories of that these journalists could just stop the work at any point in time and avoid this avoid um, this sort of hardship that comes on them. And it, to me, it felt especially stark um, to see this kind of reaction to something like political cartooning, 
which I think, you know, we might take a bit for granted. Uh, but then, you know, I have the thought that the fact that it does prompt such violence uh, shows how much of a threat that's even something like that poses to power. And so I'm wondering if there is a scale of work uh, where journalists are considering the personal risks that they're taking on, or do they in their individual circumstances feel so strongly about the work uh, that the risk they're taking on isn't necessarily a consideration? I think probably both. I mean, there's certainly going to be journalists who will self-censor because it's just too dangerous. I've come across that repeatedly in in my work. Um, uh, for me, one of the most uh, forceful examples was when I got a commission from UNESCO to go and look at Mexico journalists covering the drug violence mm -hmm. in the country and very, very brave journalists. And, you know, these aren't journalists who can hop on a plane and leave. They're living in the midst of all this violence. Their communities are racked by violence, drug-related violence, and, and they're calling out the cartels and they're calling out corrupt law enforcement officials. So these are journalists who don't have uh, any recourse to the law often because the law is corrupt. The law is in the pockets of these drug cartels. And so these journalists have no real protection. Um, and they still do it. And then the way the cartels get to them to silence them is that they actually go after their families, their children, their parents, their cousins, their, their grandparents. And for some journalists, it's just too much. And then they just stop. They, they Well, they self-censor. They, they will change something. Um, so, you know, when you escalate the threat to that level, um, for some journalists, they just can't go on at that point. They, they self-censor. Um, but then you're always going to have individuals who, who, who buck that. You know, and my, my book's an example of that. You've got those journalists who have spoken out, notwithstanding uh, the level of threat that, that comes their way. Or even though there's some, there's some nuances. Um, so with, with, uh, with uh, Kishore, the cartoonist, um, you know, clearly dictatorial authoritarian regimes don't have, sense, they don't have a sense of humor. They can't laugh at themselves. And, and laughter is a wonderful way of lampooning people, you know? Um, so, so mocking them through cartoons is a very powerful way of, you know, getting the population to laugh at these individuals, whether they're powerful bankers or politicians who kind of view themselves above everyone, who feel that they have an impunity to do what they want. And, um, and so I think Kishore with his very targeted, very cleverly drawn cartoons that tap into political events in his country, um, it's a very powerful way of undermining the strong person, getting the man in the street to laugh at them. And that becomes intolerable to these rulers. And so they, you know, they went off to Kishore very, very hard and they arrested him, they beat him up. He's a man with significant medical problems, diabetic, etc. He didn't get his medication. Um, when you're diabetic, you're kind of vulnerable to infection. He's Beating led to a wound, the wound becomes infected. So you can see how his medical problems escalated. And he was arrested alongside another man who in fact died in custody from, from, from a heart attack, which was a you know an added trauma to Kishore. Um ultimately he was released and he's living in exile now, but his time as a cartoonist was was uh, was very rough because the government would not tolerate him. They didn't find his humor funny. And another thing that comes up in Kishore's story um, is how some of these journalists consider their journalistic work to go hand in hand with social activism. Um, and as an academic journalist in the U.S., obviously I've been preached, you know, objectivity and non-bias time and time again. Uh, but I want to read now a quote from Kan Dundar, the Turkish journalist who we previously discussed, uh, who says, for people like me, our house is burning and we hear the screams of our loved ones inside. We cannot say this is not our business and just report it. 
So is objectivity a privilege for journalists in countries like the US and the UK? I think it's easier uh, to be to to be more neutral about things. Um, as, as, as Ken Dundas says very powerfully, uh, when these events are so close to you, um, and that the and the morality so corrupted and the and the behavior so egregiously wrong, you have to call it for what it is because no one else in Turkey is doing it. You know, it, it boils down to these few individuals who are holding a government accountable. As we spoke about, um, these authoritarian rulers, you know, shell out democratic institutions. They just you know, they undermine the courts. They destroy the judiciary. They expel the NGOs. Uh, they make sure that there's no opposition to them. And often the last people left standing are one or two courageous journalists. That they, they, they may have crippled the press as well, except for this handful of individuals who won't be cowed, who won't be silenced. And so when you find yourself in a situation like that, and you can see all this wrongdoing in front of you, you call it for what it is. You know, you don't, you don't have time. So I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that. You don't have time to debate the nuances. You know, there aren't any nuances anymore. That's gone. Mm. Um, you're, in, you're in such an extreme state of, of, um, of, uh, of distress. Things are so bad that um, you call it exactly for what it is. And that, of course, is very dangerous. And I want to talk now a little bit about um, moral courage of bystander journalism, which is becoming increasingly um, a thing that power structures in developed countries are being forced to contend with. Um, you know, it, it was a video shot on an iPhone by the 17-year-old Darnella Frazier in 2017 of the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police that set off worldwide movements against police brutality. Um, and I think Frazier showed moral courage by making that recording under threat of state violence herself. So how are power structures across the Press Freedom Index uh, contending with the increasing capabilities of bystander journalism? Yeah, that's a huge threat to them, isn't it? Because the numbers are large um, and you can't control every individual in society, although they try. And so they resort to even more you know, draconian means of shutting down the internet, controlling the internet, trying to control uh, online access to the media, and just trying to stifle, to stifle all those freedoms, trying to, to, to close down those avenues that allows a citizen journalist to take a photograph and send it to a news organization. Um, and you could argue that you know, countries like China are doing this very effectively because they're so draconian in the way they monitor this, their, their citizens. You know, everybody's under surveillance and um, they, they control society very, very tightly. Um, but there are many regimes that aspire to that, I would imagine. Um, thankfully, you know, in, in the country in which you live, despite, you know, fraying democratic institutions, um, you still got a very vibrant and free press. You can still do something like that, you know, same way that Canada, et cetera. So you've got your citizen journalists, user-generated content. Someone just picks up a cell phone and takes a photograph or a video or something. And the next thing it's in the hands of, you know, big news organizations and it can get a very wide readership. So that avenue still open here. And I think one thing that comes up in the book as well, we talked a little bit previously about um, like private sector censorship by purchasing an organization and then sort of censoring the journalists who work directly under them. Um, but you also mention um, countering media by, you know, starting your own media conglomerate that, you know, runs purposefully combative to, you know, whether it's investigative journalists or, or you know, citizen journalists, like is sort of the accepting that that work will be put out there and I can't stop it from being put out there. So we're going to start our own media to combat that narrative. 
Uh, can you talk a little bit about you know that that tactic in countries like the U.S. and U.K.? Well, you know, that's an example in my book of in Zambia, the, the journalist Mapwe Kumwenda, who you know started her own uh, television station because she wanted to be completely independent of someone telling her what to do, and and then she's taking it to another level because. When you run into legal problems, she doesn't want to be holden to a lawyer who potentially has a conflict of interest with the government or you know business or somewhere. And so she's retraining as a lawyer, so she'll be able to provide herself, you know, her own legal, her own legal opinion, her own legal advice to her own organization. Should her organization run foul of the government, so you know, trying whatever she can, going to extraordinary me- measures to make herself completely independent of any authority that might be biased or that will contail what she regards as her right is freedom of freedom of the press. So I think it's a remarkable story that you establish not just your own news organization, but then you basically train yourself as a lawyer so you can give yourself counsel that you trust because you don't trust a particular law firm that might have ties to government or business or, or people in power. Um, so you see the degree to which these individuals go to try and maintain their complete and absolute independence from authority from business, from governments, from whatever. They want to be their own people so they can call it as they see it. Mm. Um, and, you know, in countries like ours, we have, you know, relative freedom of the press, but there's no doubt that politicians are beholden to business, uh, lawyers are beholden to corporate interests, uh, journalists are beholden to who knows what, you know. You've got to get advertising revenue that comes in, you've got a, a political slant to... The way you have to tell a story, because that's how your news organization is, is is viewed. So there are going to be all these pressures on journalists to, you know, tow a particular line. But I think it's all relative. You really can't compare, I think, the pressure in a place like Canada or the United States to the kind of pressure that you see in Russia mm-hmm. or Belarus, for example. I think there's a, there's a vast difference between the two. Absolutely. And we're we're currently watching another case of civilian journalism under extreme duress on a wide scale in Palestine and the Gaza Strip where between 10 and 16,000 Palestinian civilians, more than 6,000 of them children, have been killed by Israeli bombing and ground attacks in two months. Um, and for some context here for the listeners, Russia's attacks in Ukraine have killed just under 10,000 civilians in almost two years, and totaling the deaths of children in every conflict zone on the planet last year, the number doesn't quite reach 3,000. Of those casualties in Israel's attacks on Gaza, 61 have been journalists. 54 were Palestinian journalists, four were Israeli, and three were Lebanese, making this the deadliest conflict for journalists since the Committee to Protect Journalists began gathering those numbers in 1992. And I know this conflict happened prior to your uh, publishing of this book, but why has this conflict been so particularly dangerous for journalists? It's a good question. I mean, I think the Middle East is a very violent place. I think one has to see the uh, the war in Gaza against the, the, the backdrop of that terrible Hamas attack on Israel and the brutality uh, that was visited on Israeli citizens, and so there's a, there's a there's an awful level of violence. You know, people are dying, and it's terrible. People are dying on both sides, and it's and it's very tragic. And um, you know, from where I sit, I don't see violence solving problems. I see violence creating more problems, more bitterness, more heartache. Um, for me, you know, the way to try and resolve things has to be through negotiation and through peaceful means because um, war is just so so destructive and the numbers of, of individuals getting killed are, are terrible. There'll be a legacy of violence that lives for such a long time. So I, I view it as a tragedy. I view it as a tragedy on both sides of this of this long-standing conflict. Uh, and it's, it's, it's you know, 
I, I don't know where this, the solution is other than at some point, at some point in this, in this terrible, long-running, painful story, people are going to have to talk to one another. They're going to have to sit down and try and make peace um, because I don't see how this is sustainable. And when it comes to civilian journalism, uh, one of the most horrifying aspects of this conflict has been the way that the Palestinian civilians in Gaza uh, have been recording and uploading uh, you know, video footage of their own attack. And despite Palestinians speaking Palestinian Arabic and Israel speaking Hebrew, the majority of the media, whether Palestinian pleas for relief or Israeli supplies labeled in English, appeals to English-speaking audiences. Uh, which is a bit of a difference from the journalist you profiled who seem to favor investigative work in their nation's language for their nation's people. Uh, even in the case of Ai Chan Nyang, whose Burmese radio station had to be based out of Norway. Um, so why is it that we see this media produced in English language? I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. I, I, I don't have an answer to that. I need to give it some thought. Um... You know, English is like the lingua franca for the world. It's a global, it's a global language, and it has a global reach. I think, like any other, you know, more than any other language. So perhaps that's maybe one of the reasons why you just have this global audience if you speak in English. So you just get so many people who would understand what, you know, what you're saying. And um, so, but it probably relates to that. I think more than anything, um, global reach, the global reach of English. It may just be as simple as that. But I need to give it more thought. Mm -hmm. And so wrapping up here, this is like my last question or two. Um, I want to leave the readers off with, you know, something that is impacting their life and maybe that they can be actionable on. And one of the most complex conversations that I've had, um, especially after reading many of the sacrifices made by journalists in your book, is how much of this media, um, especially as graphic as it can be sometimes, should we be witnessing and what should we be doing with that information, Right. Um, friends as well as myself, you know, have been sort of overwhelmed by this as well as feeling helpless. And I've caught myself recommending before to friends to limit their intake uh, before being struck by how callous that sounds in the face of the sacrifice that is being made to get that material out there in hopes of galvanizing change. So, you know, is there a correct balance? How is, is this obviously something you contend with in your work and sort of how do you, how do you deal with that and balance that yourself? Yeah, that's that's such a good question. And what I've seen is that cultures differ in their tolerance for violence on the media. So, you know, we in the West um, have uh, people in newsrooms who determine what we see. If something is too too violent, too too terrible, they they they'll pull it. We, we won't see it. So people are making that decision for us. Whereas in other parts of the world, you're going to see a lot more raw and naked violence. And I was struck by that when. Uh, in 2003, I was sent to Israel at the height of the Intifada, the second Intifada, because a newsroom was concerned about what was going on with their journalists. And they asked me to go down and have a look, see whether a psychiatrist might be able to give them some insights. And what became clear to me at the time was that newsroom had become politicized. Um, Israelis and Palestinians had worked well together, and then the suicide bombers had started, and there was this carnage on the streets of, of you know, Israel. These, bu these buses were getting blown up, and the Israeli journalists were appalled by it, and the Palestinians were, you know, saying, we've got to understand the context. And so it became clear to me that there was a newsroom that was politicized. There's nothing that a psychiatrist could do to sort that out. But while I was there, um, the journalists would show me images, and it was very clear that what was permissible on Arab television was things that we never see in the West. 
there was a level of um, of horror, which we, you know, we, 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 we recoil from that because we just don't see it. Someone is stopping us. There are people in Newsroom to stop us from seeing um, you know, the worst of violence. We just, we don't see it. Whereas um, the filter was different, culturally different in, 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 in parts of the Middle East. So from where I said, the challenge that I face as a psychiatrist, as a mental health specialist is, you know, people, journalists can see this difficult material and they can be badly affected by it. Uh, 10 years back when the American Psychiatric Association tweaked the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, they brought in a new stressor criterion. They mm. said that if, if in your line of work, you are confronted with visually troubling images, that's now considered a sufficient stress to trigger PTSD. So they were very clear and said, this doesn't apply to the general population who watches the news on CNN at night, but it applies to the journalists who through their work are exposed to a lot of this kind of imagery. So we know that this can be very, very difficult to witness. And then we did a study. We published a study a few years after that showing that journalists whose job it was to screen user-generated content, the kind of you know violence that the man in the street will form with his cell phone, they send it into newsrooms. Journalists who, who have to look at that material all day long, some of them will develop prominent symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, you know, now the threat, the physical threat's not there. You know, this is this. There's no violence directed against you. You're not going to get killed doing this. There's no one threatening to kill you. But by just seeing the horror of it all, for some people who are vulnerable, who have mental health vulnerabilities, that can be very painful. And if you happen to come from a country where that violence is taking place, and you fled that country, and you're now working in a newsroom, and you're being exposed to it vicariously secondhand, that just brings back a whole lot of trauma that you experienced early in your life. So that can be really very difficult for journalists. And my advice to them is very clear in situations like that. If you don't have to watch it, don't. There's going to be nothing gained by it. You know, if the account is there and it's a credible account that something terrible took place and it's been an atrocity or whatever it is, um, you don't have to, if you, if you don't have to look at it, to verify it then don't, because what's the purpose of it? You're just going to kind of expose yourself to something that has the potential to, to adversely affect you psychologically. And so, you know, some people unfortunately have to look at that. And so I get that. But the many people who look at it gratuitously, and then, you know, the father can't shake this image, and that becomes a problem for them. So mm. the first step is, if you don't have to look at it, don't. And you know, go from there. If you do, then you have to try and come up with strategies to mitigate the effects of it. And the DART group um, have come up with a very nice set of guidelines that journalists can use to try and mitigate the potential trauma that can come from looking at these terrible images. So there's some very clear do's and don'ts, which are fairly lengthy. Uh, but there's a there's a there's a tip sheet that they provide to to, to newsrooms that that's that's helpful in this. Um, but I come back to this, this point that I made earlier. Really, if you don't have to look at it. Why look at it? What 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 purpose is that going to serve other than to appall you, to upset you, and potentially traumatize you? If the accounts are credible and you believe them, that's enough. Go away and write your story and say what you want. Yeah. But um, be self-protective. Look out for your own emotional health in situations like this because this is nasty stuff. And then, lastly, before I give you the opportunity to you know plug your book, tell the listeners where they can go buy it. Um, I was really struck and inspired by a lot of the international organizations that you mentioned uh, throughout the book who really provide a lot of aid for investigative work. Um, I think there was even one, you mentioned the uh, journalists in Mexico reporting on the cartels, and there was even an organization um, who goes in and finishes the stories that are being worked on by uh, journalists who are killed reporting those stories. So I was wondering if you just had... Um, a few places where you could recommend if a listener wanted to support organizations like that, 
um, you know, what would you recommend or where would you direct them to? Well, the group that was so helpful with me to me in preparing this work, helping with this work, was the Committee to Protect Journalists, mm-hmm. you know, based in, in New York. I mean, they, they, they do wonderful work for journalists and they get involved and they advocate for them. They've got a powerful voice. They've got a global reach. Um, and I think that there are some governments who take note when CPJ speaks up on the, on the, on the part of a journalist. So I think they, they do wonderful work. And in the United Kingdom, there's a Rory Peck Trust, which looks after freelance journalists, freelance cam- named after a freelance camera person who was killed in Russia um, at the time of Gorbachev and Yeltsin, when there was a coup against Gorbachev. So the Rory Peck Trust does wonderful work helping um, uh, freelance journalists. I've started a non-for-profit fund to help freelance journalists as well. So, um, for example, the royalties from my book, Moral Courage, all royalties go to my non-for-profit fund. And people have contributed generously to that fund. So I'm now able to fund therapy for freelance journalists who can't afford it. And through my non-for-profit fund, I've started a program to help Afghan journalists, very moved by the plight of Afghan journalists, you know, working in the country in the last days of their government when they were targeted relentlessly by 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 the by the Taliban, the, the level of of trauma was extraordinarily high, and then with the collapse of the government, um, you know, they were left high and dry. So, I've started a program in which I actually train a couple of Afghan journalists in basic mental health, um, and then those journalists can provide the first interventions for their Afghan colleagues who need help. So, it's a way of empowering Afghan media to try and help themselves to take control of what has been such a painful and difficult situation for them. You know, their hurried departure from the country, living as refugees, not being able to work, many carrying a lot of trauma with them. And so um, through, we're working with an Australian Afghan journalist to um, use um, Australian um, Afghan psychologist, a very skilled psychologist. We've come up with a program to train Afghan journalists uh, in basic mental health intervention, and then they become the first protocol. They can work with their colleagues in Farsi and Dari, their, their own languages. Uh, they get supervision in terms of the work that they're doing, and that's and that's the cost of that's covered by my non-for-profit as well. And that's starting to gel. It's quite rewarding to see. And if that model works, mm. excited, I'm very excited about that. If this model works, it can become the template to providing help to freelance journalists elsewhere in the world who are not getting it. Places like Mexico, for example, or Kenya, where I've done some work, um, where you know journalists are doing very courageous work, but they're not getting assistance, and sometimes they can't afford it. If this model works, we can transport it to other countries as well. So, Rory Peck Trust, CPJ, and my non-for-profit, I think, are three groups that are, are doing some good work. Excellent. And then, yeah, just tell the people uh, where they can find your book, where they can where they can buy it. Give them a little call to action there. Well, I'd like to say in good bookstores, right? Don't they say that's all available in good bookstores? But it's going to be available online. Um, I, I'm not familiar with the um, uh, bookstores in the United States. Maybe Barnes and Noble. I would, I would imagine. I'm sure they would. They would keep copies. Certainly, um, in Canada. They've got you know the Indigo chain of bookstores, and, uh, and, and uh, there I said Amazon, Amazon.com, Amazon.ca. But um, the, the, the book's available. You can get it through my publisher, G Editions. Um, but generally, you know, I think going to places like like Amazon and, and Indigo and, and Barnes and & Noble, I think you get a better deal, actually. Mm-hmm. And that is Moral Courage, 19 Profiles of Investigative Journalists by Anthony Feinstein. And Anthony, thank you very much for your time, both today and 
the last time we spoke. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thank you for your interest. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. And then we have it, ladies and gentlemen, that was Brandon's interview with Mr. Anthony Feinstein. Really appreciate Mr. Feinstein coming through. Really appreciate Brandon for even doing any of this. He's gone uh, really above and beyond uh, to get this done. Did in two sessions, like you said, at the end. And uh, yeah, it's just a really, really uh, substantive conversation, which was something, you know, that I was talking about last month. Um, definitely something that I want to do more of. And uh you know, hopefully, you know, get more people that I know that actually have the expertise or the knowledge of a certain subject to talk about those subjects. I would love to um, hand the keys over to um, different people. That would be, you know, something I'd be very interested in. Um, you know, one critique, and I think if you've, you know, regularly listened, no top five. With that said, B, you're fired. <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, I guess uh, from the uh, obviously from the substance of the conversation um, it didn't really warrant it um, but hey I'm still gonna hold that grudge Uh, maybe I'll get a top five out of uh, Andy Feinstein at one point Uh, who knows you'll never know never say never because we gotta keep the street going but uh, regardless regardless great interview really appreciated it Um, loved the detail and uh, yeah, you know, we'll have um, several links in the full show notes um, to relevant topics um, uh, said in the interview, citations, references. Um, so feel free to get into those if you feel. And with that said, we shall leave it there. From the 5 EPN, I've a child Taylor. This has been most good. Intro music was Banks by Bob Berrigan, and the interview music was Boys Bop by Bureaucratic. Thanks to Chalk Music for being to use both tracks. You can find all of those links in the full show notes. And with that said, until the next time, until the next interview, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.